0: Welcome to The Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex.
1: And, Dr. Jana, this is 40.
0: We're 40. Yes. Yes. Great. Welcome to episode number 40.
1: And Dr. Jana, we've got a jam-packed podcast to get to, but uh, first of all, tell us who will be joining us today.
0: Oh, we're talking to Dr. Tierney Lorenz from University of Nebraska. She is someone that I recently saw in Madrid at the conference that I went to the summer at the International Academy of Sex Research. She presented some of her research on immunity and sex, like how sexual activity and arousal and all that can influence our immune system, which I think is really fascinating.
1: Wow! So, yeah. like, you know, getting the D also could mean vitamin D <laughs> or something like
0: that. <laughs> oh my god! Is there that's there? why I keep you around, Joe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Something. something well, like that. we'll
0: we'll ask. Okay. We'll find out. All
1: right. Cool. I don't know. It's only, I'm trying to think of some, for some sort of sexual and vitamin reference, and I got the D there. I don't know. Um, all right. So that's cool. So that's coming up today. Mm-hmm. And we should mention next week's episode is one of our legendary sex questions paloozas. Yes. And we've been getting a few questions so far, mm-hmm. but we need a few more. So if you do have a question for Dr. Jana, and I'll try to help out some way, <laughs> email info at scienceofsexpodcast.com or, of course, go to our fancy new website. Mm-hmm. Which is scienceofsexpodcast.com. All right, so before we get to uh, this week's guest, I want to talk about the Supreme Court confirmation hearings that have been going on in Washington, um, D.C. Yes. With Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, those are marathon sessions that cover a lot of different things, but we want to pick apart the part that has to do with sex science, mm-hmm. which would let's make sense. It. if it, has- yes, it would make sense. <laughs> yes, let's yes. talk about that. So Judge Brett Kavanaugh referred to some forms of birth control as, quote, abortion-induced Yes.
0: It's actually a common. I mean, you've heard that before, I'm sure. And people who may have been following the abortion debate in this country, which is uh, long and
1: (laughs) ongoing. Yeah, very winding
0: road. There is constantly this terminology. Being used by anti-abortion, you know, religious groups that make contraception. So we're not talking about abortion right now. Right. right? <laughs> we're talking about. This is about not contra- Roe v. Wade. This is not. No, any of that. we're talking no. about contraception and access to contraception, and specifically in in this case, this is referring to something that he wrote in a dissent uh, a few years ago in a case that had to do with whether organizations with particular religious convictions have the right to deny their employees access to contraception. Right. And he called contraception abortion. in Inducing drugs. And you've heard this over the years by being used by many anti-abortion groups that want to prevent not just abortion, but also contraception. To be very clear, abortion and contraception are not the same thing, right? Well, abortion
1: is one thing. And this is not opinion. This is science. (laughs) This is science. Yeah,
0: this is not opinion. This is science. Abortion is ending an existing pregnancy at some point of that existing pregnancy yeah. and contraception is preventing pregnancy from taking place in the first place.
1: Now in that statement that the Senate mentioned, he was very ambiguous, Judge Kavanaugh, because he basically didn't make it clear which contraception he was talking about. Mm. He just sort of used the generic term contraception. So right. science <laughs> it's it's safe to say that science disagrees with that, right?
0: Yes. Okay. Yes, it definitely disagrees. Well, first of all, there are many, 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 as people probably know, means of contraception. There are many different ways, and most, the vast majority of them, what they do is they prevent an egg becoming fertilized. Right. That's the one of the one of the basic first steps that you need in order for pregnancy to happen is for sperm to get close to an egg and penetrate that egg, get inside. And then you get a fertilized egg. So that's kind of that first step. I the, learned
1: that in health class. I did learn that, that in yep. health class. Yep. So yes,
0: hopefully everybody knows that. <laughs> and so uh, all of these methods that we have, condoms, hormonal IUD like Mirena and uh, Skyla and, and other uh, hormonal intrauterine devices, implants, the birth control pills mm-hmm. that so many people take, obviously things like sterilization, you know, uh, vasectomies yeah. or, and all that. All of these methods, what they do is they prevent the egg from becoming fertilized. And exactly how they do it differs whether providing like the condom, providing a physical barrier mm-hmm. through which the sperm cannot go through, or in some of these other cases like the birth control pills and the hormonal intrauterine device and any of the hormonal methods, whether whatever form they're administered in, whether as hormonal IUDs or birth control pills or patches or implants or whatever have you, what they do is they either delay ovulation or prevent ovulation from happening altogether so the egg never gets released from the ovary, right. or they thicken the mucous membrane around the cervix, mm. right? So that the sperm has a hard time swimming.
1: Right, and just put like a block. It.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They put kind of a physical block, just like condoms do, yeah. It's just in a different place.
1: It's a medical and cock block, It's basically. a medical
0: <laughs> cock block. <laughs> yes.
1: I don't know. It's the best I could come up with on short notice. And I
0: think most people even, probably even, well, I don't know, Whether some of the anti-abortion hardcore, you know, extremists, if you will, will agree with this or will acknowledge this, but I think uh, for many people, it's the morning-after pill that is the one that kind of gives them a pause or a question uh, as to how it works and whether that might work by not by preventing fertilization, but by sort of killing the fertilized egg. That has already happened. However, that's preventing fertilization from happening in the first place, right? And that's what the vast majority of, of contraception mm-hmm. methods will do. Now, the next step that needs to happen for pregnancy is for that fertilized egg to then stick to the uterus. Based on all or most medical definitions of what pregnancy is, you need that, that, that fertilized egg to stick to the uterus, to implant in the uterus for the pregnancy to begin. That's what pregnancy is. Okay. And this is important because, you know, you can't just have like a traveling fertilized egg around the, you know, <laughs> somewhere in the uterus. Right. It has to be in the uterus, in the uterine lining in order for all the processes of that, that uh, fertilized egg growing and turning into, into a green, baby. Yeah,
1: green life,
0: yep. <laughs> uh, for, for that to t- start taking place. And there are so many reasons, natural reasons, why fertilized eggs might not actually implant. And so you can't really start thinking of something as pregnancy until it has implanted. And that can happen for all sorts of physical and biological and you know, whatever other reasons that have nothing to do with taking contraception. Many uh, fertilized eggs do not implant into the uterus without anyone trying to prevent yeah. them from doing that, right? I can you
1: imagine we'd have like 700 billion people <laughs> on this earth. It'd be a little more well, crowded.
0: It might be a bit more crowded yeah. or abortion might be a lot more uh, prevalent. Yeah. But, so the big kind of debate has been around, well, do some of these, especially the morning after pill, Do they, and maybe some of these other devices, do they prevent implantation? Because some people will say, well, life begins at conception. And usually they mean at fertilization, when the egg gets fertilized, as opposed to when it gets implanted. And if you define pregnancy or life, whatever, beginning at that point, and then if we find that one of these methods prevents the implantation process then based on that definition it would be logically consistent to call that an abortion inducing drug however and that that has been more of a debate
1: I, that, that does sound debatable because that <laughs> really is no seriously that's more about your your own beliefs whereas the contraception part of it it's it's pretty much simple math. Well, the preventing fertilization. Yeah. Well, the sperm can't get into the egg with most contraceptions, correct?
0: What's debatable is whether life begins at fertilized egg or life begins at implanted fertilized egg. So that is debatable. I mean, you know, I think reasonable people to some extent can can disagree on that. But what uh, has been also debated is whether the morning after pill actually prevents implantation. Oh. Yeah. So now, and, and uh, there was some confusion around that, but gro- a growing body of research suggests like strongly suggests that the morning after pill, and there are a couple of, of v- them versions of, of yeah. them on the market, yeah. the plan B, Ella, which is a prescription-based plan B, you can get it without a prescription. Ella, you need a prescription. they don't actually prevent implantation either. They kind of work like the contraceptive pills, uh, whereby what they do is they work to stop fertilization from occurring, just like the other contraceptive methods. They delay ovulation, they thicken the cervical mucus, and that's, that's what they do. That's kind of what the science seems to be suggesting. The only thing that, thus far, there's some indication that might work to prevent implantation from happening is the copper IUD. Not the hormonal intrauterine device. However, one works hormonally, whereas the, the copper IUD for the most part prevents fertilization. Like that is how it works most of the time, just like all of these other methods. But it is also possible that it can also prevent implantation if fertilization has already occurred. So okay. but of all of the methods that we have, the copper IUD thus far seems to be the only one that is capable of preventing Implantation.
1: All right. Well, that's the science of it. So, we, no politics <laughs> yeah. involved. We just dug deep right into the science of it. Yeah, I mean, that's what it. the science is. And yeah.
0: as, as you said, it, it, it can be debatable whether you think a fertilized egg is already a life. life yeah. And that's that's when pregnancy begins. And if so, maybe you could call a copper IUD an abortion inducing well, not a drug, it's not yeah. a drug, it's a device. Right. But all of the other contraceptive methods are not. And so if you were, even, even at that very, very strict, if right. you will, extreme. Yep. extreme definition of what pregnancy is. Uh, and if you're someone who, is, uh, who has religious beliefs against abortion, then it wouldn't make sense to keep your employees from having access to all of the other ones, except maybe the
1: copper IUD. All right, good. I love science. That's the great <laughs> thing about science. It's black and white. You just read it there. You know what it is. So that's great, and that's well, the- and that's why I love ha- doing the show with you, Doctor Jana, because we kind of stick to the facts. We're, you know, sometimes we'll throw in our own little opinions, stuff like that, but you know, yeah. the facts never lie. There are
0: some things that have that that are about facts, and there's some things that are about opinions. And yeah, it, for this matter, there are some facts and there are some beliefs and opinions. And uh, I just would like for people to be logically consistent. Mm. And very often people are not. They choose to take the same information and interpret it in one way for one set of arguments. And then they interpret it in a very different way for another set of arguments, depending on what kind of argument they want to make eventually. And that does happen uh, when it comes to abortion and access to birth control. But uh, that would be... Entering politics, and we're not going to go there.
1: This is the science of sex. sex. (laughs) So tell me about today's guest that we're about to chat with, Dr. Tierney Lorenz.
0: She is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Nebraska and a member of the Center for Brain Biology and Behavior there. She received her PhD in clinical psych from University of Texas at Austin and then did a postdoctoral fellowship at the Kinsey Institute, which we've talked about and we've had people here. She's a really fascinating character. She's one of those women I think of as like badass. Oh okay. I don't know why there's some women. I mean there are a lot of women that I think are amazing. I think you're badass. But you think I'm badass? Yeah, sure. Yay. Yeah. Okay, so here's here's the thing. It may have to do with what she's studying and the fact that I don't quite have a good grasp on what she's studying. Oh, like boy. I've tried, you know, I I'm pretty good at reading science and understanding science and following science, especially stuff that has to do with sexuality. Yeah. But I went to her talk in the in, in Madrid, in right? Madrid yeah. at that conference, and I was I was having a hard time following everything that Whoa. she was saying and everything that she was explaining about the immune system and how the immune system works.
1: Hold on, I'm the only one that's supposed to be a dummy. So we have two <laughs> dummies on the show now. We Kind
0: of have two dummies. Oh so, no! So <laughs> it's funny when when we wrote to her, I was like, "Can we present this in a way? Can we present this topic in a way that?" Regular people who are not scientists in any way, shape, or form can understand. Yes, and if not, let's talk about something else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but she was pretty confident that we can talk about the immune system and sex and how the two are related, even if uh, people don't have PhDs <laughs> okay. in uh, biology right. and sexuality.
1: All right, cool. I'm, I'm, I've cleared my mind. <laughs> I'm ready to go. So, are
0: you ready? Have you slept enough? I'm have good. you eaten? Well rested. I just
1: ate, so let's do this.
0: <laughs> Dr. Tierney Lorenz, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm super excited too, and I was telling Joe I'm I'm a little intimidated by you and your research because oh my gosh I, I am, and it's so rare for me. So you you're providing you know kind of a new experience for me, which is great because <laughs> you know I remember being in Madrid and you hearing your talk and being like holy fuck, I don't think I understand everything. Like I want, I need her to re-explain this to me after the talk. And as you remember, I I came up, I'm like, wait, there's these two types of immune systems, huh? What? Um, So, but you're pretty confident that we can explain this to people in a way that they can understand even without a PhD.
2: Well, we can (laughs) certainly try. (laughs) We can try. I, I I totally get being intimidated by the immune system. I mean, I've talked with physicians and Unless you're like an immunologist, most physicians, you say, I work in immune function. They go, oh my God, I hated that (laughs) in medical school because it's so confusing because the same thing is named like five different things and it's all kind of a great big jumble and it all, like everything depends, right? The answer to everything in immunology is, well, it depends. Um, And you're probably going to hear me say that a bunch. Right, right. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've had some really good guides in this world that have kind of broken it down for me. So how did you get into this? uh, Well, it all uh, started when I was working with Sari Van Anders at the University of Michigan. Um, And she is just a phenomenal sex researcher in every possible dimension, but um, she's really a pioneer in this area. Um, And, I uh, got a fellowship to go and study at Michigan, and I just wanted to work with her. I didn't really care like what <laughs> I was doing. I was like, can I just Whatever. sit at your feet and <laughs> listen to anything you have to say? But she happened to be, at the time, um, doing a study in which she was looking at the ways that sexual activity might influence um, vaginal mucosa, because there's a lot mm-hmm. of interest in the medical field in understanding kind of what are the predictors of who gets a sexually transmitted infection and who doesn't, Mm -hmm. right, when you're exposed to that. And one of the things that might potentially be the difference between getting an STI or not is your own natural immunity, your vaginal immunity. And so she was really interested in the ways that sexual activity actually might change the way that the vagina responds to STIs and, and, and in particular HIV, Mm-hmm. And I had never even thought about that mm-hmm. question before. But she was doing this really fascinating study and um, had some data for me to kind of play around with. And you can appreciate when someone hands you an a, a, oh my God. a data set, it's yeah. like it's like Christmas morning. <laughs> like, um, I don't have to do any, any of so we, this work to collect I all know. this. Great. I know. <laughs> it's fabulous. It's it's amazing. So um so she was extremely generous with her time and extremely generous with her data and she let me kind of play around with this. We found some really interesting um, sex differences in the effects of sexual activity, the frequency of sexual activity, and um, how that related to people's production of this particular antibody that is found a lot in the mucus, in saliva, but also in vaginal fluid and things. So,
0: wait, what did and you after, find? What did you find?
2: So, that was the very first thing that, that I did in this area. And so, we were just looking at self reported frequency of sexual activity, mm-hmm. right? Like, for what it's worth. It's important to note that people sometimes lie. What? I get it. (laughs) I know.
0: What? (laughs) But yeah, Um, (laughs) we're just going to take it for, yeah.
2: We're (laughs) just going to have to take
0: their word for it.
2: Um, So we looked at their self-reported frequency of sexual activity with a partner, and we looked at men and we looked at women, and then we looked at the level of this um, salivary antibody called IgA or immunoglobulin A. And we found that the more often a woman said that she had sex, the lower the levels of this antibody that the mucosa—that's very common in the mucosa,
0: right? The so the more sex mucosa. she has, mm-hmm.
2: no, this is so this oh, is oh, um, in this, in this is just mouth. in saliva, okay. yeah. Okay. But it's the same—it's the same antibody at both okay. both ends. <laughs>
1: that's a very uh, <laughs> medical term. Both ends. <laughs> it's very scientific, yeah, yeah. very scientific way. Of
2: putting it. Um, right. So the more sex that a woman says she has, the lower the levels of this and mucosal this antibody.
0: Is- irrelevant of number of partners or did you look at number of partners or just frequency? Oh my sets? gosh. Great question. Um,
2: and especially coming from you, I should have a better <laughs> answer to that. <laughs> um, we just looked at self-reported frequency and it kind of just so happened that the majority of people in that study had one partner. Oh, okay. It was not excluded or included. Cause as I said before, I didn't do none of the collection.
1: (laughs) So, what did, so you said the more sex, yeah, decreased the antibody. So, what did that mean to, what is is that antibody responsible for?
2: Well, it's your kind of your first line of defense against anything that comes in through the mucosal membranes, right? For your mouth, for your vagina, for your gut. You know, it's it's the antibody that is kind of your barrier, right? Between you and the outside world. So,
0: the more you have sex, the less barriers the less of a barrier you have the more you're likely to get
2: yeah to get anything
1: like what like for example what could you get with low
2: with low iga so like i said iga is is your kind of your frontline defense Mm. so um it's really looking out for things that might get into your tissues so it's really interested in trying to keep you from having a bacterial infection Mm. from something that you eat or a viral infection from something that you accidentally touch to your mouth or to your vagina, right? So it's really trying to keep out infectious or pathogenic uh, microbes or, or agents from the outside world. Oh,
0: boy. All right. Everybody so going we in for, yeah. yeah, well, we found <laughs> it for women, but the opposite
2: for men, right? The opposite for men. So that was men. what was really fascinating. So the more that a guy said that he had sex the more he had production of this antibody so there's this like oh, total reversal of the effect right
1: it's good to be a guy
2: so wow. god damn you man <laughs> <laughs> can can we catch uh, a break seriously I know,
0: right <laughs> can we wait but it the guys thinking
2: like why why is it sure. why is it happening this way right mm-hmm. and so we started thinking about when would you want your immune system actually to not act as, as much as it possibly can against an outside invader. And we kind of realized that particularly for women who are in their reproductive years, you don't want the immune system to react to sperm or to uh, an embryo before it has a chance to implant into the uterus and kind of form mm. its little placental barrier of its own, right? So mm. there are actually because sometimes... It, hold on,
0: because it, it could, right? your the, A woman's uh-huh. immune system could potentially have a immunological reaction and reject. The IgA totally. could be like, we don't want you here, sperm.
2: Exactly. And mm-hmm. in fact, for women who have There there are there's a whole class of women who have infertility issues because their immune systems react to sperm or to ejaculate, you know, to the components of ejaculate, and so they're not able to get pregnant. And it's really heartbreaking for these women because their immune systems are just trying to help,
0: (laughs) right? Trying to keep the invaders out. (laughs) But they're keeping the wrong invaders out in that in that case. And you said also exactly. it could it could re- reject an, an embryo before it gets fertilized? Well before, yeah, before it has a chance no, b- before to implant. It, so before it gets implanted, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So this little baby zygote, you know, this this combination of a sperm and an egg, it's pretty vulnerable until it has a chance to implant into the uterus and start, you know, kind of infiltrating and and creating its own little placental barrier. And in those, you know, few hours and days, you know, as that's happening, um, it's, it also is, you know, by definition, it's one half, not the mother, right? Mm. Half of its genes come from somewhere else. And so it's actually oh, fairly common for the mother's immune system to say, I don't, I don't recognize you. You know, it, this, this Your does not look organism. Like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you're a parasite. I, I don't want you. <laughs> You know, technically speaking, it's not wrong.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> man, the human body is crazy. Like to, for it to be able at this level to like, it's yeah. th- like men and women are almost the same, but yet it's just a little different so it can accept a sperm. I mean, that's like, that's so, it's, it's almost like mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's
0: funny. It is
2: totally, mm-hmm. Joe, right there. Like that feeling right there. This is why I do this work. It is mm-hmm. so mind blowing to me that these differences exist and they're so subtle, but they they reverberate out and they could have some potentially
0: really important wow. implications. Yeah. And it's so funny uh, that we're actually talking about that in our foreplay for this episode, what we were just talking about was uh, Brett Kavanaugh uh, talking about contraceptives as as mm. dr- uh, abortion-inducing drugs. And I was trying to explain some of these things around, you know, the fertilized egg and, you know, when is, <laughs> when is pregnancy beginning and all that. So I'm glad that mm-hmm. we're kind of re- iterating some of these things around how pregnancy happens. It's a very consistent yeah. episode. <laughs> they
1: call it a callback yeah. in showbiz. That's a, a callback? callback. yeah. Oh, yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay, so we got to the point of if the immune system is particularly active, if you have a lot of IgA, basically it might, if you're trying to get pregnant or if there's sperm in your body, it might reject it whether yeah. as it's making and its way up to the egg or after if it's made its way to the egg until it mm-hmm. implants in the uterus in the uterine right. lining and then becomes part of the mother's body and at that point it's no longer going to happen right
2: well at that point it's starting to have its own kinds of barrier like the placenta starts to form and so that's this really complex interesting immune environment of its own so it has to, mm. it starts to have its own defenses in its own way of talking to the mother's immune system and saying, Hey, this is me. Please don't kill <laughs> don't me. Kill me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so there's just a different, um, mm-hmm. a different way that it defends itself. But in that, you know, in that short time, and there's this critical window where um, the mother's immune system has to be really careful because on the one hand, you don't want to let everything in, right? Cause mm-hmm. that's what causes STIs. That's what causes, Um, you know, genital inflammation and all kinds of problems. But on the other side, you don't want to accidentally get rid of this really, really important (laughs) cell or bundle of
0: cells. That's uh, (laughs) a paradox. (laughs) Yeah.
2: yeah, It's this paradox. It's this trade-off. It's this like fundamental trade-off. And I got so excited and so interested in, in in helping to understand that, that balancing act, right? Because it's, it's so fundamental to our evolution Right? Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out a way to, to, to make that balance work out is it's a really tricky problem. And the immune system is, has adapted some really amazing features to be able to get around that.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: one of the things that I got really interested in, and it's, it's kind of the underlying feature of all of my work, is it only really makes sense to, um, to, to make a change, to change up how the immune system reacts if you're sexually active, because unless you're the Virgin Mary, right, mm-hmm. y- you need to be sexually active in order to conceive, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. I mean, but That's in, how it in, usually in, works. In, in evolutionary yeah. Yeah. <laughs> time, right? Like nowadays we have ways around it. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, but over the course of our evolution, right – you had, to, you had to be having sex
1: to mm-hmm. be
0: having babies. Right. right, I'm the non-scientist and, and I knew up. that.
1: Yeah. I knew that, Dr. Lorenz, just so you know. I was on top of Good. That. I knew that one, yeah.
0: Good. He, he learned yeah. that in in uh, Ab- middle school? Yeah, middle school mm-hmm. probably, yeah. Great. <laughs> right, it's so- like immune, immunology 101, right? So, like,
2: so, so the immune system knows if this person is not sexually active, right, or if they're not frequently sexually active, then the chances of conception are really low. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense to be pulling itself back and um, preventing itself from having its maximum effect if
0: right. there's no reason to. Right, right. So you're going right. to give them why, all the IGAs and, and probably there's some other other defenses yeah, similar. Tons A, of other
2: mechanisms, right. right? That that you just, why not have maximum guard all the time?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What What this means is that The immune system needs to have some way of knowing whether or not conception is likely to happen. And what I've shown now in a couple of different studies across a couple of different populations is that it looks at sexual activity and it uses information about whether or not this person is sexually active to determine whether or not it needs to engage these trade-offs, tradeoffs, whether or not not Mm. it needs to even bother with this balancing Mm. act. And that to me is fascinating. Hmm. The immune system knows if I'm sexually active and it makes changes based on that information. How, did,
1: how yeah, does it just, know? Just, you took the words around us. How the hell does the immune system know that you're getting laid? It's crazy. It is Do crazy, know? isn't
0: it? Do we know what the mechanisms and are? Or? No. No. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> well, that means we you're going to have, have no a job for, for quite right. some time. I mean, time. this is yeah. my career, right? Yeah. Is is, is
1: <laughs> like maybe figuring young that shit out. You're um, still
0: young and you have a chance, <laughs> you know, of getting to the bottom of this. <laughs> so maybe, you know, in mean, 20 I, years I we'll have you back. I I am going to be able to get to the bottom of this. This is
2: such a big question, but you know, we're, we are among the first to even be asking this question, Mm -hmm. which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. So that like we've, I I now I've seen this effect happen in, like I said, in a couple of different populations. We've looked at it in college students. We've looked at it in free ranging adults, not in Mm -hmm. college. We've Mm -hmm. looked at it in um, people who are living here in the U S we've even looked at this at in women who are living in the Bolivian highlands, mm.
1: um,
2: in the Altiplano of Bolivia. So we looked at this in rural farm workers mm-hmm. who were had lived their whole life in this small village out in this remote part of Bolivia, in the, you know, in the mountains. Um, like these are women who, like you think about your average white college student here in the US, and then you think about these women who are living out in like the middle of nowhere in Bolivia. And you kind of compare their lifestyles, and they could not be more different, right? right? Like,
0: (laughs) no drunk hookups uh, every Friday, Saturday night. No.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. Like, completely different diets, completely Mm -hmm. different, like, patterns of sexual activity, Mm -hmm. completely different lifestyles. Like, yeah, different pathogens, different environment. Like, very little exposure to antibiotics or medications in this Bolivian group. And yet, we still see these exact same.
0: Patterns. And when you say these exact same patterns, you're referring to the abstinent women kind of having higher uh, IgA and other um, antibodies than the, the more sexually active women? Right. So in that particular study, we were actually looking at inflammation patterns, and we were
2: comparing the differences that we've seen between women who are sexually abstinent and women who are sexually active in terms of their inflammation patterns. So it wasn't IgA per se for that study, mm-hmm. but we found exactly the same things that we have found in these like white college student populations.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's going kind of the same.
2: Um, the same direction of these effects, right? <laughs> so where women who are sexually active have higher levels of inflammation, especially during kind of the non-fertile phases versus women who are sexually abstinent, they tend to have lower levels
1: of inflammation. Now I'm probably putting the so, cart before the horse, but is there anything mm-hmm. people can do that affects this?
2: That's a very good question, Joe. And, and I think, psychological stress and the production of different antibodies, your production of inflammation. There's a lot of really interesting work looking at diet and physical activity and like your overall stress load, your, um, your relationships. So like there's been some really interesting studies looking at if you have a happy marriage, then your production of antibodies is higher. Um, but if you have an unhappy marriage, then your production of antibodies of these, um, mucosal antibodies is much lower, um, and your inflammation is much higher. So there's lots of other behavioral or psychological effects that can cause the same kind of thing. Mm. Um, so it's not like sex is the only thing that's mm-hmm. doing this, right? There's, right, there's <laughs> This is happening in context with a whole lot of other stuff going on. I actually, one of the things I'm really curious about is if you are in an unhappy relationship, but you're having a lot of sex and as a sex therapist, I have seen those couples in my office. Um, like what is going on in their immune systems, right? Like, is it like clash of the titans of right. these two forces or what? Are, are they canceling but, each other
0: out those two effects? Or? I have no idea. Yes.
2: There's, I mean, there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're, you're talking kind of generally about higher versus lower inflammation Mm -hmm. patterns or these uh, antibodies. But Mm -hmm. a a lot of the research, especially, I don't know, I I read like five of the studies that you published over the last couple of years uh, had to do also with when in a woman's cycle Mm -hmm. some of these things are happening. Can you bring Mm -hmm. that in in a somewhat Mm -hmm. understandable way? (laughs) Sure. So kind
2: of coming back to this idea that the immune system is kind of doing this balancing act between defending the woman and making sure that it doesn't accidentally interfere with conception, right? It it makes sense that that balancing act in and of itself that that would change throughout this woman's menstrual cycle mm. because she's not always fertile during that menstrual cycle. So at times when she's not fertile when even if she did have sex at that time that it's really unlikely that she would conceive. Um, the immune system is going to generally favor defending her,
0: mm-hmm. right? So higher Higher antibodies. immunoglobulin
2: mm-hmm. production, um, kind of generally higher inflammation too, because even though we give inflammation really bad rap, um, it's also an incredibly protective aspect of the immune system. It's, that's why it exists. It
0: it's it's not there stuff. just to mess
2: with us. <laughs> so when a woman is not in her fertile phase, um, kind of makes sense. The immune system would really favor defense. This is defense of strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but when she gets closer and closer to ovulation, closer and closer to her period of peak fertility, then that balancing act really starts to come into play. And so what we find is that when there are differences between sexually active and sexually abstinent women we tend to see it play out kind of over the course of the menstrual cycle. So, for example, when women are sexually abstinent, there's really very little change in the level of inflammation, in the um, production of different antibody types, in the way that the T helper cells act, right? It's pretty stable across the cycle. Mm,
0: right, because they're not but having if- sex, chances of mm-hmm. anything happening, any kind of fertilization happening or super super small so the body clearly knows and just keep
2: one one solid defensive line all the time right just you know stay the course right but if a woman is sexually active then it's going to shift up its strategy at different points in the cycle mm. right so it's going to favor defense during the menstrual phase it's going to favor defense in the luteal phase but then around the time of probably ovulation... Most,
0: most people have no idea what luteal is. So there's another, oh, another sure. term So at the beginning of the
2: menstrual cycle, when she's still bleeding, pretty unlikely, not totally impossible, but pretty unlikely that she's going to be getting pregnant if she has sex then. Really kind of towards the very, very end of the menstrual cycle, long after ovulation has occurred or hasn't occurred, depending, you know, um, then you know, long after the egg has kind of closed up shop and said, you know, forget it not happening this time <laughs> around, right, then it's also extremely unlikely that she's mm. going to get pregnant even if she has sex during that time. So, it's really kind of in that mid-cycle range where if she has sex during that time, then she's much more likely to get pregnant. So, that's what we call that ovulatory phase, right, when the egg is ripe and it's ready and it's released and like all systems go, right? <laughs> and that's... <laughs> that's actually kind of a narrow window. Um, it's, it's, you know, depending on the woman, depending on the factors, it can be anywhere between, um, you know, 12 to 36 hours between when she actually ovulates, um, and when she's like maximally fertile. So it's kind of a small window, but Mm -hmm. um, just,
0: just as information, how long do sperm survive? And so that can, Right. If the sperm is there a little, mm-hmm. y- a little earlier before the ovulation happens, what, what's the what's the full mm-hmm. window just to give people kind of these basic data?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, so, again, it depends. There's that phrase again. Yeah. It depends, <laughs> um, And it depends on things like uh, like how uh, active is this um, woman's uh, immune system? Well, you know, like how many fighters does this sperm have to dodge? Uh, to To stick around, um, but it can be anywhere between um, one to six days that sperm can stay viable once it's actually been deposited into the vagina.
0: You should see Joe's face right Wait, now. Wait,
1: what? Wait, it stays there for the,
0: all that mm-hmm. time. One to six mm-hmm. days.
1: Wow, I did not know mm-hmm. that.
0: What do you think? It immediately just, dies if it doesn't find an egg immediately, then it just dies. Not
1: immediately, but I thought soon after. But wow, like five minutes. Okay, I don't know. I don't like, know. How, how, no, I just thought maybe minutes, <laughs> and then you know, I don't know, uh, the the body discharged anything that was there. There'd be a lot fewer babies around. Wow. There'd be a if lot fewer case. babies around. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. yeah.
2: So so like the oh, um, we just
0: blew joe's mind mind blown the, yes gone doctor He <laughs> totally blew his
2: mind right so so if you're I uh, told you she was if you're it. a sperm yeah, right your job is to shoot yourself as deep into that reproductive tract as possible and hold tight and <laughs> as just as long as you uh, can <laughs> fly. got it as long as you can because you're you're basically kind of like sitting around and waiting I and mean, this is a bit of an over <laughs>
1: Generalization. But no, like you're basically I, if no, you're a sperm, it. you're
2: sitting there waiting for this magical ovulation event to occur. Because like I said, the ovulation window is really, really short, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're waiting for like if you have to time the sperm the sperm's entry into the reproductive tract for that like magical blossoming moment, you're gonna have a lot fewer babies
1: around. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's almost like I hate to use the words miracle, but like the <laughs> idea of making a baby, it's kind of <gasps> miraculous. And- he,
0: he's going to have a spiritual <laughs> no, experience on us right now. Oh,
1: boy. I mean, right? <laughs> Dr. I'm, not, I'm, like-
0: I'm not prepared to deal with this. Uh, luckily, you're a therapist, so
1: I'm going to leave you. <laughs> but, but the chances of this happening, it's pretty amazing because all these factors that you brought into it, Dr. Lorenz, and it's like, oh, and then finally, if it's able to hang out for dear life while it just happens to be ovulating at that time, uh-huh. then there's I mean, there's a lot yeah. of things that happen. Which
0: is why there's so many couples struggling with infertility. A lot, of, But a lot, a lot, a lot
2: of couples you know, don't get pregnant the first time they try and, and try longer than they think they were going mm-hmm. to. And, um, mm-hmm. and that's because there's, like you said, Joe, there it's kind of a miracle that this happens at all.
1: <laughs> uh, Dr. Lorenz is team just... Joe. I like, I like Dr. Lorenz. <laughs> I like her a lot. She's cool.
0: Fine. Yeah, Joe, Joe is a weakling. He needs, uh, he needs, uh, support.
1: Well, well do, you know, I will say, Doctor Jones I may interject here. Uh, you know, Doctor John was warning me. She's like, you know, Joe, you're not going to get any of this stuff because I had trouble understanding it. And I will tell you, so far, chatting with you this whole time, it's been a very pleasant, fun conversation, and I've understood pretty much everything you said. So oh, I'm just blowing up Doctor Jenna's spot here because, like, I I was in that Madrid, and I was listening. I don't know, maybe you okay. might have been drinking too much or something, but you said you had trouble understanding what I, you were saying. I, in my, well, defense... I'm not
0: using any of the big words that exactly. I used in that talk. Exactly. Oh, okay. In my defense, that talk was way more, you know, complicated okay. and, and, uh, than, than this is. Right. So, so, uh, Dr. Lorenz is doing a great job kind of translating this You're into into a general audience <laughs> kind of conversation. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is great. <laughs> well, good, good. I'm
2: glad to hear it. Like I said, I've been really, really lucky to have
0: guides in my own,
2: uh, my own way in this to, to kind of break it mm-hmm. down for me. Cause you know, I'm a psychologist by training. Like, I am not an immunologist. I'm not a biologist. I've just been fairly lucky that there are biologists and immunologists in the world who are also interested in this question, who are willing to sit me down and be like, okay, kid. This
0: is how it works. Yeah. This is how it works. (laughs) Is there anything, are there any other aspects of sexuality, aside from how often you have sex, that... Mm -hmm could be related to some of this immune functioning. I remember, if I remember correctly, that talk in Madrid that we were just talking about was not about how often you have sex, but it was about genital arousal. Is that mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah.
2: So kind of going back to before when we were saying, like, how does the body know that you're sexually active, right? This is still a totally open question. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. But one of the possibilities is that there's something about the sexual response, right? The the um, way that the body becomes aroused, or um, when a woman has an orgasm, or um, the experience of sexual pleasure. Like one of these things might potentially be the cue to mm-hmm. the immune system. And so, some of the studies that we've been doing um, over the last couple of years and that I'm continuing now here at Nebraska um, is looking at just that. It's looking at objective measures of um, sexual arousal and orgasm and seeing like, does this predict these, uh, changes that we've seen in immune function? Does it, does it change, um, antibody production? Does it change inflammation? And one of the things I'm really interested in now is looking at, let's take it a little bit of a step further, instead of just looking at like how much, what are the levels of this or that that I can, um, test in a test tube, but, um, how well is the immune system able to fight against a real foe? So for those studies, we, um, we bring women into the lab and we take samples of their saliva, of their blood or their vaginal fluid. Um, and then we have them self stimulate in the lab and we measure how aroused do they become and whether or not they have an orgasm for that. We just ask them, did you have an orgasm? (laughs) Yes, no happy face, sad face. (laughs) Um, and then we um, we take another measurement after they're done. Um, and then we take that into the lab and we actually infect the sample that we took from this woman with a common pathogen. So for example, we use... Um, Candida albicans, which is the yeast, yeast infection. That's, yeast infections. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> lots <yeah>. of women.
0: <laughs> no, they're feeling yeah, uncomfortable is, right now. Well, <laughs> like oh yeah, I know what well, that. Well, dude, dudes like. get them
2: too, and um, yeah, they can be pretty nasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and having lots of recurrent yeast infections can lower fertility. And we know this, mm-hmm. so it's a really important question. Um, we also know that when a woman becomes first becomes sexually active for like for the first time, or if she becomes very sexually active. Like all of a sudden, she's far more likely to get a yeast infection. Mm. And so one of the things that we're looking at is, is there something that happens during arousal or during orgasm that actually changes how well this woman's body is able to fight off this candida? So we'll mm-hmm. actually take some candida and we'll put it in the vaginal sample and we'll see like how well does it grow Mm-hmm. Um, in the pre-orgasm sample, how well does it grow in the post-orgasm sample and just kind and, of compare each woman to herself. And
0: I'm on the edge so, of my seat right now. <laughs>
2: yeah. So what we've found so far is that, um, arousal seems to be great for fighting off infections, mm. but orgasm, not so much. Damn it. So while <laughs> getting really aroused seems to improve the body's ability to fight off this candida infection mm-hmm. and, and also does a lot of other kind of beneficial things like um, lower inflammation and, um, and increase antibody count um, temporarily. Orgasm seems to be kind of the opposite. It seems like orgasm either has no effect mm-hmm. um, or actually in some cases it seems to very slightly decrease people's ability to fight off these infections See, I told which you, is Dr. not Janna. at all what i expected
1: yeah. you don't have to worry about orgasms anymore that's fine it's... all right people no more <laughs> no orgasm. no no, just... no
2: not the message no the message we're taking away from this is how can we continue to protect women
0: and allow them to have the orgasms <laughs> that they
1: want all right but but also, if you say so Doctor. also Rice.
0: i think uh, <laughs> you know we, we talk about orgasms a lot as this great thing and why don't more women have them and that, mm-hmm. that is Mm -hmm. a big problem and the other kind of the the uh, other argument to that is are we too fixated on orgasms Mm -hmm. and is Mm -hmm. a sexual experience not a very pleasurable sexual experience if it doesn't end with an orgasm and here's an immunological reason to not be too (laughs) worried about it and to just focus on the on the experience itself and continuing Mm -hmm. this highly sexually arousing experience which may not end in an orgasm and that might not be a bad Thing as long as you are aroused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as long as long as you're having fun,
2: right? I, you know, having an orgasm or not is not like um, it's not you don't right. get a medal, right? right?
0: <laughs> it's not the end all be all. And now there's another. An <laughs> an, end immune, all. And Now there's an the immunological I, I, reason. I, I for do want
2: to <laughs> be careful to say sure, sure. when we're testing these things in the lab, we're looking at really really subtle effects, right? Mm-hmm. We're we're making sure that we can measure things very accurately and precisely, um, and so we often will find significant findings that are like mathematically or statistically mm. significant. But if you ask, if you were like really press me to say like, okay, does this mean that this particular woman is going to be more or less likely to have a yeast infection if she does or doesn't or orgasm? It's like, right, well, right. Right. it's, it's almost impossible to say there's a lot of other factors, you know, I'm controlling mm. for a lot of stuff in the lab. Um, that you so wouldn't be able like, to control in I'm not life. sure right. that women should go out there <laughs> and Stop having orgasms just because of this. <laughs> st- I mean, good God, I would not want to ever, ever tell somebody that that's a bad thing. But uh, you know, but it is really interesting that we find different things for arousal and orgasm because right. I think a lot of people assume that arousal that orgasm is just like arousal on steroids. On steroids,
0: exactly. So whatever arousal does, orgasm should do the same, just more,
2: like a lot more, <laughs> right. right? And what we're finding is actually they're they're really different. They're, they're really distinct events. Um, and the immune system kind of treats them a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm still not sure exactly why that would be, or, Um, like what this translates to in terms of like public health issues. Mm -hmm. Like there's still a lot more research that needs to be done there. Um, But I do think it's kind of interesting that they are different. Right, right. So we've been talking Um, about uh, women this whole time. What about men? So that is a really interesting question. um, And one that I get a lot when I present on these research (laughs) findings at conferences. And it's usually in the context of me presenting something on menstrual cycle data. And so that question always kind of Confuses me because I'll be like, well, very few men have menstrual cycles. Um, <laughs> what are the numbers not on none.
1: that? How, ma- how many
0: men? <laughs> well, there are trans, Some trans
2: men. Oh, true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not none, but like very few. Okay. So um, I don't know the answer to that part of it. But in terms of just broadly, like what is the effect on sexual activity on men? Um, I've only done one study looking at men. And that was that first study first that I had thing. mentioned where mm-hmm. we looked at sex differences. Um, And I kind of made a decision early on in my career that I was really interested in studying women's health and women's issues, um, partially because it's just it's a really fascinating system in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And kind of the issues around balancing trade-offs between reproduction and defense are kind of specific to to women. And so you kind of have to specialize in one. But also from just from a personal standpoint, there's been so much research that's focused on men right. that I kind of made the decision, I'm going to study women and if I find something really interesting and exciting in women, I can rest assured that somebody else is <laughs> going to then go and try and replicate it in men. Right? I don't have to worry mm-hmm. that the men are going to get left out. Yes. Boy, I, right. I, I was just
1: going to uh, say, when are men going to break here? I mean, come on. Oh, don't even try. <laughs>
2: um, so I encourage, like if somebody is, listening to this and, and is like, well, but what about men? Like, <laughs> great, great question. Go ahead. <laughs> great. Like, I would love to see those findings, but I don't need personally to, to be doing that research mm-hmm. because there's just so much fascinating work to be done just within women. Gotcha. Um, so I don't, I don't actually know what the effects in
0: men are. And um, I encourage folks to take up that banner. <laughs> what are some take-home messages from all of this research that people can apply to their own lives? So a
2: lot of this research is still really preliminary. Um, There's a lot more that needs to be done to translate these findings from laboratory studies into findings that can help people with fertility issues or improve STI treatments or prevention treatments. Um, So I'm not sure that I can give anything really specific about that, but I will say there's enough data now to suggest that if you are sexually active, then your immune system is going to be more variable than if you're sexually abstinent. And so when we think about doctor's tests that require you to take a measurement of your immune system, right? So for example, if you go into the doctor and you're getting a test for um, your inflammation levels, which is something that they'll test if they think you might have um, diabetes or um, heart disease, risk for one of those things, if you're going to be getting that test, and if you're sexually active, the results on one day might be very different Mm -hmm. than two weeks later. There's actually been a couple of studies now that the um, NIH has funded looking at how the menstrual cycle changes um, people's results on these inflammation tests.
0: So when should you go in? If you're a sexually active woman during reproductive times of your life, when Mm -hmm. should you go in? When you're menstruating, so, when you're ovulating if, and... What? If, it, if it is at
2: all possible to try to schedule those visits for around your mid-cycle when things are going to be kind of at their lowest and most stable. Mid-cycle. And right, at mid-cycle. If you can't, if you're sexually active, that might end up mattering more. But at the very least, kind of keeping that in mind when you go to interpret the results of those tests mm-hmm. to know if I have a really super high result... It might be worth it to go back and get that rechecked because my my levels might go down a lot just simply by the fact that I'm at a different point in my mm-hmm. cycle. And that difference might be the difference between starting a drug regimen to help prevent right. uh, heart disease or not. Right. Mm-hmm. Taking medication early or not.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: I, if it were me, I would want to know that I have the most accurate answer to that right. question. Okay. So that's one thing that we can take away. And the other thing that we can take away is that, um, if we're going to get an Im- immune treatment, like an allergy shot or a flu shot, again, if you're a sexually active woman, your, uh, your response to that allergy shot or that flu shot is going to differ a lot. Oh if you're God. at mid cycle or if you're at a non mid cycle point, if you're at the beginning or at the end of your cycle, so,
0: do it during, so during from- ovulation, doing, do it, do it during ovulation,
2: right? <laughs> yeah, so if you, well, so there's pros and cons there, right? So if you get your flu shot during ovulation, you're much less likely to experience side effects of that flu shot, right? Like everybody has had that happen to them. You get the flu shot mm-hmm. and then the next day it's like, oh, you just feel like crap, right? And that's because your immune system is reacting to that attenuated form of the flu that's in the flu shot. And that's actually what protects you is that you're giving your immune system an opportunity to practice fight the flu, right? So if you're the kind of person who has really, really serious side effects of the flu shot, like you take the flu shot and you just, you're totally wiped out for days and you can't function, but you still want to make sure that you get your flu shot. I would say for that person, totally try and schedule that flu shot or that allergy shot to happen in mid cycle. But if you're, if you're usually pretty okay and you're able to deal with the side mm. effects of those shots and it doesn't, you know, like totally knock you out, I'd actually recommend mm. doing it at kind of the, towards the end of the cycle, because that's the point at which your immune system is going to be much stronger, right. right? Much better at defense. And so it's actually going to be some potentially more effective if you're able to do to schedule it during that time. Now that does mean you're going to have, you know, more side more effects, side effects. Um, okay. but it might also make it more effective. <laughs> So okay. it really depends on whether you're sexually active or sexually
0: abstinent, though. Right, right, of course. Um, any any sex-relevant application in, in, in how to go about our sex lives, aside from <laughs> flu shots and, and and other testing? I know you're, you're very reluctant to say it, but...
2: So one of the studies oh, that okay. we have just started and um, that I think is very promising is looking at how inflammation might relate to sexual desire and arousal Mm -hmm. um, because we know that women who have kind of chronically high levels of of, um, inflammation tend to report lower sexual desire, lower sexual interest. And what we found Mm -hmm. actually in the lab is that if a woman has kind of really high, chronically high levels of inflammation, usually these are people who are living really stressful lives, they actually say that, that their sexual activity is less fun, less pleasurable. Um, and that it, it just feels less good. And so one of the things I'm curious about is um, if people do things that are kind of helping to reduce their chronic exposure to high levels of inflammation, like if they take an omega-3 supplement or if they work on their sleep hygiene or if they, you know, just kind of clean up their diet, if that in turn will improve their sexual pleasure and in their sexual desire. Um, so I think, you know, there's enough evidence to say that having an anti-inflammatory lifestyle is just generally good for you. Like eating a Mediterranean diet, getting good sleep, like these are just good, good things to do regardless. But I think there could be the added benefit of also improving sexual interest and pleasure and and desire. All
0: right. Lots of reasons to uh, live a healthy, healthy lifestyle.
2: (laughs) One more reason. Exactly. Not that you needed another reason. but There it is.
0: I would love to stay and chat more and we just have to get Dr. Lorenz back on the show. Right, Joe?
1: Yeah, no, she's fascinating. And you know what? I didn't feel as dumb as you thought I was going to feel like. No,
0: no, I didn't feel as dumb as I (laughs) thought I would feel. So you made both of us feel so much better about ourselves uh, when I prepped us. You deserve to feel good about (laughs) yourself. Thank you. You guys are doing a public service in this podcast. Thank you for contributing to that. And thank you for being on the Science of Sex podcast. Of course. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, Dr. Jana, that was fascinating. we were not two dummies. We were
0: not two dummies. I'm so happy about that. Cool.
1: So we are wrapping things up here, but we will be back next week for our sex question palooza. Don't Ma-
0: forget to send your questions in any way. Info at scienceofsexpodcast.com or our website, scienceofsexpodcast.com. There's a get in touch page that you can uh, get in touch with us. You can tweet at us. You can Instagram us. I'm a Dr. Jana. Joe is a Joe Partavilla.
1: Any way you can get a hold of us. We Just will take us. your questions. We're yes, we're findable. All right, Dr. Jana, I will see you next week. Bye. Bye.
0: To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, go to the scienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us
2: on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod and follow us on Facebook at The Science of Sex
1: Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.